0: Hello, I'm Douglas Murray, and welcome to Uncancelled History. Today, we're going to be talking about the attempted cancellation, not just of one figure, but of a whole range of figures. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, the great classical philosophers who formed the foundation of Western thought. We're going to be discussing the attempt to eradicate the whole Western canon, including some of the philosophers of the Enlightenment. The reason this discussion matters is because the attempt to destroy, cancel the Western classical tradition, including the classical tradition of philosophy, arguably leaves the West without some of its most important foundations. Take away Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, the Enlightenment. You take away the very foundations of free thought, free inquiry, rationalism and so much more. That's why the attempt to cancel the classics matters today as much as ever. And I'm delighted today to be joined in this discussion by a personal hero and one of my favorite writers currently working, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, a writer of extraordinary subtlety, depth, depth erudition and thoughtfulness. He's the author of two books, Losing My Cool, Love, Literature, and A Black Man's Escape from the Crowd, that was published in 2010, and Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race, from 2019. He's also the author of a forthcoming book called Nothing Was the Same, The Pandemic Summer of George Floyd and the Shift in Western Consciousness. In addition to his books, he's written widely on issues of culture, not least in the Atlantic magazine where he's a contributing writer, but also in the New York Times magazine, Harper's and Le Monde. Thomas, thanks so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure, thanks for the introduction. I wanted to start off with something you wrote about recently in The Atlantic. The piece was entitled Saving Classics from Identity Politics. And it's partly a review of a new book by Roosevelt Montez uh, called Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. And and you quoted this. You said... um, Montez described an intellectual origin story that I found strikingly familiar. Uh, A fatherless teenager who had recently immigrated to the Bronx from the sticks of the Dominican Republic and was still learning to read in English, found himself on a winter evening faced with a pile of discarded books, some ornately decorated with gold-edged pages waiting for the garbage collectors. Montez says, I wanted to take them all, but there were too many and we had no bookshelves. In the end i grabbed only two hardbacks one of them was a volume of plato's dialogues that fortuitous selection and his dogged efforts to learn what was between those covers would fundamentally change him what was it in that that made you think of your own story
1: well it made me think of my father's story um which is intimately connected to my own because My father um, was born in 1937 in uh, Texas, in Longview, Texas, grew up in Galveston. As a black man in America at that time, that means he grew up under segregation, Um, and his identity was uh, formally as a second-class citizen. He came from a family that had no education, but he also, um, I was really struck when I read that in Montes' book because my father also stumbled upon at first it wasn't Plato's Dialogues, it was Will Durant's The Story of Philosophy. And he was a young boy, seven or eight years old, and, he, and there was an illustrated picture of Socrates's face and my father fell in love with that face in a way and wanted to understand what about this man made it that his face was still being looked at thousands of years later and so that led him to the Dialogues and that led him to um, understanding that there was something in these books that transcended whatever his society was telling him about his identity, his particularized identity here, and put him in conversation with something universal and something transcendent um, and something uh, uplifting. And so he set about becoming um, a voracious lifelong reader and collector of books. Um, he didn't become a wealthy man, but he raised my brother and me in a, in a house that had about 15,000 books in it by the time that we were coming up, and so reading and thinking of yourself as someone who participates in this wider uh, universal culture, um, humanistic culture, that, that became the gift uh, and the legacy that he passed on to us. And it, the, the purpose of it was that you don't let other people tell you who you are, dictate to you what your de- identity is. You define the self, you create the self, and you do that by being in conversation with some of the best um, thoughts that have been um, articulated.
0: Uh, so, 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 by the way, Socrates for a young boy is, is that's a pretty amazing place to start from.
1: It's an amazing uh, stroke of luck, and you know, my, my father kind of, uh, I think of him as a kind of Socratic figure in that um you enter into his home and he begins to ask you questions and and things that you say and that somebody else you might be talking to um lets fly and takes for granted he he asks you a little bit more and probes a bit more and you have to you know if we were talking about the weather at dinner growing up you know you would have to actually defend the proposition that it was so <laughs> you, you, he wouldn't just accept it but it was these conversations these 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 back and forth uh, dialogues with him that i think actually strengthened my ability to um to know what i actually believed and to 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 want to be somebody that um advanced positions in public i mean the the, the beginning of becoming a writer for me was really talking with my
0: dad but, but before we come on to that how to influence you this i mean um one of the many interesting things in that is this is about a the means by which you do dialogue mm-hmm. not just. Where you're getting to, mm-hmm. but the means of getting there.
1: Absolutely, um, I think that you know we live in a culture where there's a lot less questioning, and there's much more assertion, and the means of getting at truth—the Socr- the Socratic way of getting at truth—is to is not to assert, but to but to ask, right? To interrogate.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to um, quote one other thing from uh, the recent Atlantic piece you wrote. Uh, it's, it starts with another quote from Roosevelt Montes. Uh, Every year, Montes says, I witness Socrates bringing students, my high school students as well as my Columbia students, to serious contemplation of the ultimately existential issues his philosophy demands we grapple with. Montes writes, my students from low-income households do not take this sort of thinking to be the exclusive privilege of a social elite. In fact, they find in it a vision of dignity and excellence that is not constrained by material limitations. Um, and then you add you add to this, you say this position may have once seemed obvious. And you say, think of how W.E. Mm-hmm. Bede Boys, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass stressed the importance of a universal humanistic education. But you add today, that thing that seemed obvious then is quote, radical and contested.
1: Right, because I mean, this is even very different than when I was growing up, but I think it has to do with the fact that those students are being introduced to those texts with someone like Roosevelt, who um, they relate to and who's bringing them to the texts in a way that they uh, trust. And it, it, it feels like how my father is bringing some of my friends and I to it. Um, some of my friends uh, also had their lives changed by Coming to my house and reading with my father, but I don't know that they would have necessarily approached those texts the same way had it just been dropped on them in school. It was the, mm. the it's also the the person um, kind of showing you that these things matter, and you can see how it works with you now we have in the in the piece what I was referring to is now we have this kind of um, reevaluation of, of 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 these ancient figures in the Western tradition itself as being inherently um, What is in today's parlance called white supremacist or uh, is being? uh, Emblems of whiteness and that are necessarily exclusive and so you have a kind of it's radical to say what he's saying no Socrates belongs to these uh, underprivileged materially underprivileged Dominican kids in the Bronx uh, just as much as or maybe more because he's telling them how to survive uh, existentially uh, what types of questions to ask to live uh, a meaningful life and to flourish that's that's that he's talking about exactly what has to do with their lives But there's an argument now that that, that, that says no 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 like uh, they need to actually read and think about people who physically resemble them mm. And Socrates was a white man And you know I reject that out of out of hat because it's absurd to say because whiteness is a f- relatively recent concept and Socrates we know that the Athenians didn't look around and say, we're all a bunch of white people no. here, it's all good. They said, no, I'm an Athenian. And like, if you're in the next city state, yeah, you're a that, barbarian. That was a problem. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah.
0: If you're from Sparta, yeah, then that's a real problem.
1: They didn't say yeah. we've yeah. all got similar, you know, uh, um, epidermises, that wasn't how they thought of themselves. So it's, 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 it's a kind of revision of, you know, it's, it's, it's looking at the past or the prism of the present mm. in a very specific uh, way of thinking about identity.
0: One of the many pitfalls in that, uh, that, what you've just outlined, is of course, if you weren't to have, say, Socrates as a as a figure on which to base that, you would have to have a Socrates-like figure, and there aren't many around. <laughs> well,
1: no, he was a pretty uh, unique individual. You're saying, I, but I'm I'm not following. You. You're saying that if you wanted to say
0: that he defines that whiteness, if you, if you wanted, to, no, 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 that if you wanted to say we can't deal with Socrates. Um, oh, who else makes, are you? Right. Then you've got to have a Socrates-like figure to fill the gap, right? And and they're just there's not many around. Well,
1: this is actually something I really agreed with Tana on when he said, you know, Saul Bellow asked, "Who's the Tolstoy of the Zulus?" Uh, and and, and Tana says, "I reject that question. Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus." And I, you know, Socrates is the Socrates uh, Mm -hmm. of the Dominican kids in the Bronx. Uh, You don't have to find somebody that uh, comes from the Dominican Republic who was Socrates.
0: The people who would suggest that Socrates doesn't belong to everybody don't very often suggest who ought to be put in that place.
1: That's right. Or they, I find, suggest far more contemporary um, thinkers that even if you, Read as generously as possible. Have simply haven't stood the test of time to substantiate that they are as mm-hmm. that they are a um, equivalent uh, a voice to swap with someone like Socrates. Um, and what really intrigues me about this line of thinking is that the. It, it, it's that horseshoe where the anti-racists actually end up really agreeing with the same premises that the real racists have which is that they also think that Socrates and the classics and the Western tradition belongs to white people. Uh, they're very happy for you to say, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, Socrates isn't yours. Yeah. He's ours. Yeah. Uh, and I really hesitate to ever find myself in a position where I'm mimicking the same exact patterns of thought that um people that racists who believe that the thing that matters is the racial category and that's what can't be transcended
0: there seems to be in our time this very clear attempt to war on these sort of origin figures on the on the central figures who provided what you know whether people recognize it or not are the philosophical underpinnings of <laughs> our societies uh plato aristotle socrates um and And this 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 sort of war on these people has has consequences. And just wanted wanted to quote one final thing from a recent Atlantic essay of of yours. Uh, You wrote uh, in 2019, Richard Carranza, then the chancellor of New York City Schools, held what city held citywide white supremacy culture training sessions for administrators, highlighting what was termed worship of the written word or emphasis on documentation and writing skills, rather than the ability to relate to others as evidence of institutional racism. Uh, you go on, in July 2020, the Smithsonian Institution published and then rescinded a graphic on its talking about race site that identified rational thought, politeness, objectivity, and the Protestant, and the Protestant work ethic as harmful white characteristics that perpetuate systemic racism. This past February, a consortium of two dozen education organizations funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation published a pathway to equitable math instruction, which argued that a focus on getting the right answer and requiring students to show their work were facets also of white supremacy culture.
1: It's astonishing. I mean, you would think if you just substituted out a few words, you would think that that came from an absolute white supremacist. Yeah. Uh, you know, ob- objective uh, reasoning, um, literacy, numeracy. These are things that are the properties of white identity. The written word. The written word. I mean, think about it's it's so absurd on its face. It means that you're essentially saying that Nigerian immigrants and, and, and the Chinese kids in fleshing Queens are you know you see a, a work ethic uh, in those cultures that uh, to say that that is the property of whiteness it's 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 first of all it's absurd and it's so patronizing to um, uh, American blacks it's essentially saying that you know you have to find ways to to to, to think of them as actually having. Uh, different brains or different cognitive capacities. I mean, it's, it's something that if you were to accept the premises of this, you're, you, you cannot actually have any uh, reasonable notion of equality. You're, you're, you're saying that equality is unachievable and it's, it's, it's absurdly diminishing. So um, you know, this is the kind of context that we're talking about when we say that Montes published a defense of you know, the great books program and the classics at Columbia. That's, mm. that's what he's in conversation with actually.
0: It, it, it seems to me that this sort of thinking you outlined is a direct consequence of this assault on a war against foundational figures like Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. Because if you do away with all of that, you end up in this place where you have to talk about other virtues. Mm-hmm. So the the the, the, the classics lay out... Uh, an interpretation of virtues, the things you should have in your life, the things you should aspire to, including critical thought, reasoning and much more. And what I'm stunned by is that, is that this, this, for instance, is this example you quote from the Chancellor of New York City Schools. He puts up the ability to relate to others as though that stands in antithesis. To literacy. To literacy. I know, it's, a, it's an astonishing thought, if you think about that
1: for even two seconds. And this is citywide training programs for how teachers are supposed to go back into the classroom and think about relating to different students based on um, the color
0: of their skin But it, 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 I mean, it, it, it creates a dichotomy, and again, this is in the name of anti-racism. It creates a dichotomy where they say white people have this white supremacist culture where they worship the written word. But black people have an ability to relate to others,
1: right? Well, because they—the one of the premises is that white uh, individualism belongs to white people as well. So non-whites are more communal. I mean, this is like classic racism. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I've never met more of an individualist than my black dad. You know, uh, right. the idea that that's some aspect of himself that was either um, mimicking whites or. Like right. in opposition to his racial essence, it's absurd. I mean, uh, the idea that, that, that it's also, yeah, it's, it's, it's a form of racism if you think about it for a moment, because you're se- essentially saying that white people um, lack the capacity to relate to others. <laughs> I mean, it's true of the English, but um, <laughs> um, it's, it's, not, not, it's just, not that far off. It's but, uh,
0: but but it's the same with this this uh, this one of the, of the so-called equitable maths that you refer to because equitable maths to the extent that it means anything seems to be an attempt to throw out again the uh, um, a certain tradition of reason of mm-hmm. logic mm-hmm. Uh, which you pick up from the classics is, is to throw that out and say there are other ways of knowing. And that's what the Equitable Maths Project suggests. It, says, it suggests that this right. ma- this mathematics is not universal. It's right. it's Western and it's white and therefore white supremacist. But there are other ways of knowing that certain
1: people that certain people possessed based on racial essences. Yes, I mean you're coming back to actual like biological racism based mm. on based on your genes and ancestry. You have other ways of knowing. It's, it's, it's actually a terrifying thought. I mean, I think it's something that, whenever I try to have these conversations with my dad, because he's not—he's eighty-four. He's not, you know, paying attention to all of that. But I mean, he's astonished. You know, it, it just seems so far away from what people had imagined. Uh, you know, the march towards equality meant. Mm. Uh, I think it would be astonishing to, you know. Martin Luther King Jr. I don't think thought that he was in possession of other ways of knowing. I think he mastered Hegel, and he mastered a way of speaking that moved people around the world, not based on some esoteric uh, mm. racial essence that he possessed, but based on being able to to speak at the at the, at the highest level of of uh, of, of, of rhetoric, uh, and, and it's it's a way of speaking that you know belongs to everybody and everybody can master.
0: And, um. By the way, one of the other interesting aspects of this is if you if you throw out that tradition of, or um, well, I mean the the classic one in, in this one is you know showing your work as you do a mathematical problem. But you, you, if you throw out the classics, if you throw out the origins of of philosophy, of thought, of reasoning, of logic, you end up in a situation where people say uh, you've got these other ways of knowing. But here's here's one of the conundrums about this: they never say. What the other ways of knowing are, or what they could or have produced? I think that some people do
1: make an argument that other ways of knowing are like being very emotionally intel- intelligent, you know, being very uh, sensitive uh, of other people's moods, maybe reading people. I think there are arguments for how. Horror people are more aware of how other people are feeling than, than wealthier people. Again, this has nothing to do with blood and skin.
0: No, I mean it's it's, it's also a classic. It's like you, uh, female, your survival, male, yeah,
1: your survival it. depends on um, reading uh, other people's moods and states because you don't have as much autonomy if you're impoverished. You have to be able to survive by reading your environment, and people with a lot of means can kind of be um, less sensitive to other people. I guess this has been, yeah. I, I, I can't off the top season, of my head tell you yeah. the research, but this has been shown, that the, but it's not about race. It's about the more money you have, the less um, uh, sensitive you can be. I mean, this is also something that we probably have all observed, like unscientifically. You know, you mm. get you, you get you get around uh, the Kardashians, and they're less emotionally intelligent than than like this very nice uh, grandmother is going to be. You know, at the bodega. You
0: know, but it's. I mean, the, the thing about this, these are different ways of uh, behaving or different ways of. Um, dealing with other human beings, right. maybe, and you could do that across uh, stratification according to class or, or, or um, uh, financial uh, means. You could also do it along sex. Mm-hmm. generalized. yeah. Uh, and obviously. why
1: is it this? Because historically, women have had to know how to right. read, <laughs>
0: absolutely, <laughs> what men are thinking and how they're feeling, yeah. trying to work out what men are thinking. Yeah, um, but but again, it, it, it's not clear that this produces something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to say, I mean, we know what what mathematics based on a on a system of logic produces. Um, we, we know that you can do economics. You can do basic sums. We sponies. know you can
1: figure out aerodynamics with that. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's not.
0: Right. We know that you can right. ho- put up and hold up a bridge.
1: Emotional intelligence is not going to make a bridge it sustain can itself. Cannot right. make it's a bridge. The, right.
0: It probably can't keep up the bridge. It probably right. can't keep up the bridge made by an engineer who did the normal way of knowing
1: and and you never get into the conver- the conversation never proceeds to the point where it says like and what would a world be like if we did not have bridges that could sustain their own weight right what would that world look like we all need these bridges we use these bridges we all need like to understand aerodynamics to mm. say to say you know to get into the argument where math doesn't describe objective reality it's 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 weird because you get to live in the world that math and and that type of you know mastery creates, but you get to kind of, uh, you get to gain, uh, the achievement and say that other things are just as good. And, you know, I, I, I don't know where they think that this is taking us. Right. You know, it kind of relies on not everybody buying into it, because I think that, they, I, I, I doubt that, that, that these people who advance these arguments believe that we're everybody to get on board. If you, like, played it out like the categorical imperative, every, everybody has to. Think and behave this way—that can't create the world you want to actually live in. You want your elevator to not
0: fall. You—it's definitely one of my priorities. (laughs) Um, uh, Let's—I want to bring back to the 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 roots of this. Um, We started off talking about um, uh, Socrates and some of the other foundational figures. I wanted to bring us back to another one, which is Aristotle, and um, I have to have your thoughts on this. In 2018, um, somebody called Matthew Sears, who is apparently an associate professor of classics and ancient history at the University of New Brunswick, Um, I say apparently because what he's about to say uh, would suggest that he couldn't possibly be a professor or a professor of classics. But anyway, he wrote a piece in the Washington Post in 2018, titled "Aristotle, Father of Scientific Racism." got to keep a straight face because there's a lot worse to come he says <laughs> I missed this at the time somehow. yeah yeah the author also described Aristotle as the granddaddy of all racial theorists and among the charges that uh, this Matthew Sears professor Matthew says made was that one of the charges against Aristotle is that Charles Murray the author of the bell curve once named him as his favorite philosopher that's a
1: charge against a man who lived before Jesus Christ <laughs> two and a
0: half thousand years ago yeah.
1: Guilt by association really taken to its <laughs> <the>, furthest extent.
0: <laughs> that's, the, that's the furthest I've ever known guilt by association. Yeah. It's way beyond sins of the father. Wow, wow.
1: anachronistic guilt by association is pretty, uh, how do you defend yourself against that? Yeah,
0: you've got to make sure that you don't do anything that somebody 2,500 years
1: later could like who is on the wrong side of history. I mean, it's, yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> um, it certainly puts pressure on us all as writers. Um, uh, anyhow, but, 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 but Matthew Sears went on in the Washington Post to say, in the first book of his Politics, written in the 300s BC, Aristotle uses these taxonomies uh, to justify the exclusion of certain people from civic life. Aristotle therefore envisioned a hierarchical society where everyone had their proper place from fully enfranchised citizens all the way down to slaves.
1: That seems to be a way of organ- organizing society that was replicated uh, in India, in China, all over Africa. I mean, it doesn't seem to be unique to ancient Athens. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird way of, uh, but you know, th- there's this way of, um, I'm quite fascinated with, it's, it, it's a form of kind of, narcissism and white supremacy to say that all evils only come from this tradition that we call white now that we that we say you know belongs to us and so it excuses or, or it makes unimportant or insignificant um, the hierarchical thinking and oppressive ways of living that other cultures also mm. I mean there's to this day there's still there's slavery right now yeah, but we uh, almost are incapable of speaking about it because it's only a kind of slavery that came through the collision of Europe and Africa that has mm. any moral, balance. Um, mm. And I, I get this kind of this sense from what he's trying to say is that it doesn't matter that other peoples did these same things. It's, it, it, you know, this is a kind of sin, of you know, of retroactive whiteness that uh, that, that, that that is the only relevant. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's 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 astonishing because again it it's it's the same way of thinking that the actual racists uh, apply. Mm. Uh, no idea, one else has a, has agency.
0: The idea that in a book written in the 300s BC, um, Aristotle believed in the exclusion of certain people from civic life. Um, there seems to be what in the era of the internet and social media we would call severe context collapse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean. Yes, <laughs> um, in in the in two thousand three in three hundred BC, um, everybody was excluding some people from civic life. There wasn't much by way of civic life as we would now.
1: Right. It was it was the breakthrough in Athens was that anybody was participating in any kind of democratic way of uh, civic life. I mean, that, that's that was the breakthrough was that some people. Did this right. but, but but the idea that uh, Most people did that is extraordinarily Recent and this
0: idea. This is ch- this other charge against Aristotle that that he envisioned a hierarchical society um, Again, I mean this is it's It's an extraordinary form of context collapse because of, of course hierarchies Exist they exist now, but of course they were in Aristotle's mind. They were in everybody's mind, right? In a, in a time when What we now regard as the most basic provisions of life were absent for most people, right? It's an it's an incredible thing to, to have done but it, it goes back to what you I think described right as this the certain narcissism of the current age. Yeah, where we we Look back at the past and we scour it for things that they were thinking which we don't now think and and I suppose this comes back to the the central thing of, and therefore you throw it out? <laughs> well, the, the thing that's really
1: dispiriting is this kind of, this need for um, really not complex figures. So this idea that um, thinking in any way that is no longer the way we think means that uh, you're completely disqualified. So Dostoevsky was an anti-Semite, he certainly wasn't a fan of black people. Um, and therefore, he's, he, he's, he's, he, he no longer has the other redeeming qualities of his art that we should probably still be paying attention to. He's, mm. he's somebody that's no longer relevant. I mean, the idea that Aristotle had to be um, absolutely um, aligned with what we believe is um, right think now on every question means that we can't, uh, you know, hold two ideas in our head at once which is that he got a hell of a lot right and it's, we still basically understand drama in the way that he laid out he, he may have actually like justified slavery that also wasn't really like uh distinguishing for him at the time yeah. in, in in that part of the, the movie. opposite would right. have been highly would have been highly distinguishing but we still have a sense of a of narrative that he laid out for us mm. it, it holds up i mean I, I just find the lack of willingness to of people as fundamentally complicated and contradictory even is a kind of sign of the 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 moral um immaturity Mm. uh of the of the current moment you know and it extends to you know the 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 authors of of this society you know Mm. um they were um, most of them were not morally superior to their time by certain measures but who who of us is you know you can you can play this out that in future generations if you know vladimir putin doesn't uh end the game right now future generations are going to think things that we do that we think are quite normal with animals are are Mm. monstrous you know you know that's coming you know the things that we do with the way that we treat the environment the all of these things are going to look to future generations as monstrous very few of us are it's a it's a weird thing to do to expect everybody to everybody to be morally superior to their
0: age mm. so by the way it's also a slightly odd thing always in my view knowing some writers are being one to expect that writers are going to be ethically more pure than other people right including philosophers right i mean it's, it's a pleasant idea but what you're after there is a sage right. or a priest not a philosopher or a writer right I mean, you're, you're after the sort of the perfect ethical figure rather than the person who's just describing that um, we We, we focus that um, so far a little on, on Socrates Aristotle um, mentioned Plato but I, I wanted to bring us slightly um, closer up to the present because um, you live uh, most of your time in Paris and there's a an perception which I've, I've encouraged myself as well that in France there isn't this cancellation of the classic figures in the same way there is in the American context in the British context and others but there is at least one very telling um, example where where that where that British, American, Western let's say, um, Anglosphere habit of rampaging through the past and cancelling figures is happening in France, it seems, and that's Voltaire.
1: Ah, uh, well, that's interesting. I haven't met any French. Who called for this? Uh, did you did you read uh, an argument against Voltaire? There's quite a lot out there. Yeah, I mean he has said very objectional things about mm-hmm. uh, Jews and Muslims. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he also. I haven't seen it. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have high regard for Africans, but mm. certainly extraordinarily anti-Semitic
0: and anti-Muslim. Uh, and uh, there's also, I mean, there's, there's other arguments against Vol- Voltaire. will get onto, but he. he um, uh his statue in Paris, uh, near Les Invalides, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, twice in recent years covered in red paint mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because of a- accusations about his views on slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and now uh, the statue of Voltaire in Paris has been disappeared. And there is... Uh, I didn't I mean, know that. Yeah. The, the French authorities took it away uh, about uh, 18 months, two years they ago. Kept
1: attracting too much... Uh... Well,
0: they said it was for cleaning. Ah. And it... Either the cleaning is taking an awfully long time <laughs> or Voltaire ain't coming back. <laughs> um, the reason I mention this is because it's, it's an interesting example of this happening in real time and, and the complexity which you, you referred to in your writings and, and, and as you are today is, of course, in one way, there is an argument against Voltaire saying the various negative things about it. some of his writings you say, the un- unpleasant uh, um, things he said. Uh, he also made what I regard as being one of the strongest anti-slavery views ever made in Candide. Mm -hmm. Um, And so first of all, there's this thing of, surely what we're struggling with is weighing people up in the balance Mm -hmm. um, so that somebody can have been of their time on the issue of, say, slavery, and also have been, in their writing, explicitly anti-slavery. And I would have thought that Candide was probably the work which... If anyone's going to read Voltaire today is... Yeah, what that's what you would read at. in high but, school. Yeah. So be, that would be what you would come across. You'd actually come across something which is... The person
1: at their best. The person at their best. That's right. You actually, that's the strange thing about cancelling people from the past because you often don't... You, it's often that the things that they said that are so objectionable or did, those are dug up. And the things that we encounter them through are them at their best and are
0: probably things that we should hold on to. You know, this is the case with David Hume. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Hume is, is uh, right. Kendi and others, attack because of w- one footnote, uh, which is right. a reprehensible and ugly and racist sentiment in, a, in one footnote, which all Hume scholars know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get back to this thing that, what were these philosophers actually trying to do in their day? And Voltaire had his own priorities, amongst which was to war against the clergy, to try to tear the 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 the, the, the terror make sure that you could separate out civil society and the, and the clericy. right and we
1: owe quite a debt for that and we were very happy that that separation occurred
0: absolutely same thing with Immanuel Kant he, he was he was not thinking about slavery he was not you might have say he should have been thinking more about inequality but mm-hmm. he was at work on other things you know D- David Hume was also trying to wrestle society away from uh beliefs in Basically superstition, I think you can say. And again, there there must be some way to, to, you know, tilt our heads to, to, to nod and to thank people for those things, whilst in the round, recognizing as well that they are going to have views which, in this case, several hundred years later, in the case of Aristotle, two and a half thousand years later, we're not going to share.
1: Right and that like the the pr- progress is not that everybody has to be retroactively held to the standards of the current day progress is that you build on the best of what's been thought and acted and enacted from the past and you take it a bit further you, they pass the baton and the i i mean it's just it, it's it's very strange to me that that we don't just intuit that people from previous eras were working with different frameworks mm. um and that we ourselves are complicated, we give ourselves quite a lot of uh, leeway. We, 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 we know that we mess up and we are not correct on every question. And we say that we, you know, we, we understand we're trying, but we don't kind of extend that generosity. Yes. Uh, I've been really surprised by how, um, how puritanical the moment has become. And, 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 and not to keep like saying the same thing, but I think that it really does matter that the things that we're like scandalized by are things that have to be dug up. That, that that there's this kind of scouring yes. of the past, looking for um, things to get upset over. Looking for the
0: errant yeah. footnote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the uh, many things that comes it, one that comes to mind from this is uh, a, a quote of a favorite quote of my Milan Kundera, who who said in I think Testaments Betrayed, he said, um, "Mankind operates in a fog. <laughs> uh, we stumble along a path. We create our path as we go along it." Uh, this isn't the in- interesting observation. So the interesting thing is that when we look back, we see the man, we see the path, but we don't see the fog. That's
1: mm, mm-hmm. beautiful. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Everything everything seems obvious once you've got there because right. you're here. We're here. Um, and we're here because things happened. Mm-hmm. All of which seem obvious to us. Right. The classic one being everyone knows exactly what they would have done from 1939 to 1945 right. had they been in Germany and they would have all been... Oskar Schindler, or they been members of the White Rose group. In fact, they would all been Nazis, almost certainly. And uh, I mean, we know that uh, if you're in Germany, most
1: people couldn't have been anti Nazis. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it, we all imagine that had we been living in uh, um, the Enlightenment period. By the way, again, it's interesting the number of attacks on Enlightenment philosophers right. we see coming across. Um, we imagine that if we were in, in the midst of the enlightenment, we would be trying to work out the categorical imperative. We would be, uh, trying to work out how to divorce society from, uh, um, superstition. And we would also be laying down the groundwork for a more equitable society.
1: And be abolitionists. Absolutely. And be everybody would be an abolitionist. Yeah. And if
0: we were living in Aristotle's time, we would definitely have spent our, our, our efforts in, uh, whilst writing, um, books on, on politics and poetics and drama. Uh, trying to explain why there shouldn't be a slave system.
1: Right. No, I mean, it, it's, a, it, it's a narcissism and it's a kind of, uh, it's it's not extending the kind of generosity uh, to the past that you um, take for granted for for yourself in the present. Um, it's, it's a kind of, a, it, I, I guess I keep coming back to the idea that it's a kind of infantilized way of thinking about mm. things. You know, I think that what we are starving for in the era of social media is more moral complexity more moral ambiguity and the tolerance for that, the ability to live um, outside of uh, binaries and black and, and, and white visions of uh, of good and bad, Manichaean ways of, mm. of organizing
0: uh, who's worth um, listening to and who's not. Of course, there's now a, um, bringing us right up to date, there's a A movement of this, which is now known as decolonizing curricula, which, as far as I can see, consists of stripping out uh, white authors from the past, whether or not they've said things that we don't agree with now. I was amused the other week that there was a, darkly amused, obviously one has to take your jokes where you can these days, but there was a school somewhere in America where the students had taken it upon themselves to decolonize the library. And You're not going to
1: end up with any books that way.
0: Yeah. It, it, because it,
1: it, the, the reality is you can't make the past different. You, you, you have to face the fact that for a long time, white men published more than non-white men and white women. Mm-hmm. Much of what has stood the test of time um, coming from Europe and then America through a racist uh, way of organizing society happens to have been done by white men. Mm. To get rid of all of that would be to get rid of a lot of what has been published and what has stood the test of time. And it's just, it's it's racist. Like, I think that there's this desire to make the bad that happened in the past go away and, and, and to kind of, to, to rid ourselves of that. But that was the past that's what that's the society that's how society comes to us to decolonize the libraries to get rid of most of the books and and to fill it up with stuff that's been written quite
0: recently well that's that's one thing which exacerbates the narcissistic trend of our era which is because if if we if we sort of tried to pretend that history started with us then then we aren't gonna have any i mean there was a a friend of a late friend of mine an indian economist who said he once went to deepak lal he once went to a uh a, um a new university somewhere in asia and they um he asked to see in the library the economics um section <laughs> and they they said they didn't have an economics section because what he and, and what he realized was that they believed that economics was something which just kept going forwards in a teleological fashion so that you had no need to learn of what economics had, had been, been in the past had been in the past one of the many, many problems of which is that you would, for instance, not have the wisdom to know about what a bubble is. <laughs> and you might need that wisdom. You might not know what a market stampede looks mm-hmm. like. And my suspicion is that on, on other subjects as well as economics, that sort of thinking has been coming in, mm-hmm. that, that we know more than Plato because we live after him. Mm-hmm. We live. We know more than Aristotle and Socrates because we live after them.
1: Yeah, that's the kind of the hubris of, of contemporary knowledge. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I studied philosophy. I don't have a PhD, but I studied philosophy undergrad. And, you know, you know that the forms don't exist in the sky the way Plato thought they did. Mm. The, the, the perfect table. There's a form of that. But you see the way that he thought and you trace that up through... Up through Hegel, you trace it all the way to the current moment. You see how people arrived at the knowledge we have now. And mm. if you have any humility, you know that there's somebody waiting down the, yes. down the line yes. from where you are that's going to think that things you took for granted are actually quite mistaken. I mean, yes. uh, there's a kind of, yeah, there's a bias of the present moment that I think that we're really stuck in uh, morally but also intellectually.
0: I have, I have a favorite example of that. I, I find it rather touching when you read somebody you think of as, a, a, a great classic writer you read who believed something that we now think how could you possibly believe right. that? There? there's an example in isaac walton on the great 17th century uh, writers in england who who refers to the fact that every night uh, in the city um people are gathering because they believe that there has been a sighting of a sprite <laughs> and and Isaac Walton, you, uh, you gear up as you read this reference to expect that what's going to happen is Walton is going to say because he's such a wise man, but he he's it. going to say what idiots these people are. And he says, "It's said that the sprite leaves behind a, a, a beautiful scent," and he says, and "He thinks these people are all mistaken. I think it was a fairy." <laughs> <laughs> well, Oh, well, I didn't see that
1: coming. But it's good that we actually know that. I don't think we'd be better off if we no longer, if we
0: excised that knowledge of how exactly. people used to think. I find it sort of, as I, say, I find it touching and kind yeah. of, and also it, um, it comes back to this point of humility. Um, if you know that people in the past were like that, then you get the opportunity to think. Well, a, a much more important ethical, moral exercise for us is. Everybody else in the past believed strange and bizarre things, and some things which we now look back at and think, "How the hell did you uh, do that?"
1: Yeah.
0: And an interesting question is, is: is well, then what are the things we're doing that exactly. future generations will say, "What were they?" Thinking? I'm sure, like um,
1: industrial farming. Mm. I'm sure, if you're talking about moral questions, this is going to be a huge. You know, the, the, the speciesism and all this stuff, mm. you know, we're, we're presiding over, like, the largest mass extinction um, mm. of biodiversity um, since, I think, the dinosaurs died. We're presiding over something, like, monstrous in its scale of loss of life. You know that people are say, well, what were you doing at the time? Mm. You know, right. is, uh, this is going to, it's just, it, it's, it's bizarre to think that uh, everything's been sorted now.
0: Mm. You know, I wanted to touch on two things before we have to wrap up but one is you you've referred in the past um notably in um, self-portrait in black and white to a need to Form as it were a coalition or alliance of people who reject this way of thinking who reject the way of thinking that Aristotle Plato Socrates is all just dead white men by the way with I think with the, that proviso that they, they use the word dead as an insult, you know <laughs> as if like that's not gonna to happen to them. <laughs> right? What losers, they weren't just <laughs> They're not white even men, but they died. What kind of a loser does that? <laughs> but but you, you mentioned in self-portrait in black and white that the need for a sort of coalition of people across political, racial, and other boundaries to to reject this way of thinking, to reject this. this mm. Well,
1: also to reject, uh, in self-portrait in black and white, I'm asking for a coalition of people who are um, good-faith, well-meaning, to reject the kind of identity categories that we um, are socialized to believe are um, the most important and that define us and that cannot be transcended. Um, I'm really asking for something that a lot of people think is naive, which is to, um, if you really want to move beyond racism, um, don't just oppose Racism, but actually imagine a future in which race is transcended Mm. and it's something that actually um, A certain type of anti-racist Can get very upset with because there's a kind of um Doubling down on the very category that I would argue is encoded with a sense of hierarchy that you say you want to To dismantle but you can't Mm. because because these terms this way of thinking actually it comes from a domination. It comes from the, the white and black can't be um, redeemed as ways of organizing people. And so long as we have um, the scientific knowledge that we have now that says that actually um, there's one race, which is uh, homo sapiens, I think we have to actually find a different language. It's, mm. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pretending that it's not an extraordinarily difficult ask mm. for people, but I, I, you know, I argue that people should think of themselves in ethnic terms and cultural terms and national terms and um, community terms. Uh, but the idea that there is um, something that makes you a different race than me, I just don't think you're going to ever get, um, get beyond what that implies in terms, mm. of, in terms of racism. Um,
0: where do you think that's going to lead if, if that ambition of yours, is word doesn't work? Let's say the people who want to uh, cancel the classics, throw out all philosophy until them, mm-hmm. uh, and and pretend that everything that's uh, you know to do with objectivity, rational thought, and so on are mm-hmm. examples of white supremacist culture. Where will that lead?
1: Well, then it's just this power politics where it's uh, you know what can I get as a so as a Latino. I have to have you know um, this type of representation this has to be this is I think of myself in this way uh, as a member of this group, and I'm pitted fundamentally, my interests are pitted against yours, mm. and maybe we can form coalitions or so, but we cannot actually have the exact same aims and ends uh. And so that, that's, a, that's a necessarily a kind of balkanized society that I think we're stuck in now. But it's not. I think a lot of us have a sense that this is not the ideal society. The way the way, our, the way our politics and social life is organized now cannot be the best of all possible worlds. A lot of us sense that there's something not quite right about identity groups vying against each other at all times. And then you have you know you have you you, you have these terrible situations where. Um, depending on who has power or or who has the ear of power, um, whole groups get, uh, um, their interests get tossed aside uh, or the the interests of individuals certainly get trampled on. Um, I'm thinking of a situation like getting into Harvard or something like that where uh, on the altar of identity, like uh, Asian Americans just get sacrificed because we're actually not trying to build a society where um, you're not being encountered as an as an avatar of an abstraction. Um, we're just saying that, well, something's gotta give and high performing Asians uh, are gonna be sacrificed so that we can have more representation of this abstract group here. Um, that's problematic. I don't think anybody can argue with a straight face that that's the best we could possibly
0: do. Mm. It also, uh, doesn't it suggest that we just, we just can't understand each other?
1: It, it, well, or, or, or that making the effort to understand each other would undermine other things that are more important than understanding each other. Uh, if that makes sense. Such as such as representation and a kind of you know quota enforced diversity. Um, you you talked about things that are just presumed earlier and are not actually. You never get like the argument for what actually is better about this way than other ways. You know we just are in a situation now where we say diversity is good and that's unquestionable. But no one makes a case for what is so good about what is so good about um, having a certain assortment of people from certain so-called racial groups um, if they all think the same or if they're all from the same class or we, there, there's not an argument for why that is actually better than having other ways of organizing things um, and maybe it is better, but that argument never even gets made anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just unquestionable. That things have to be diverse in this very specific understanding of what diversity is
0: it reminds me of the famous uh, anecdote in tom wolf's uh, radical chic about the, the the black panther reception thrown at the bernstein's oh, apartment yeah i mean one of the greatest pieces of writing uh, in the late 20th century you remember that um, at one point, then the burn signs of the uh, exquisitely chic apartment. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> have the and the canapes. eating petit four. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and Tom Wolfe describes the scene and and that uh, I think it's Otto Preminger keeps asking one of the panthers, but I don't understand. What do you want after this? What do you want? I'll, I'll count after that comes after, and eventually one of the panthers uh, says. Um, you can't put you can't put a blueprint on the future man and bernstein says you mean you're just gonna wing it <laughs> yes <laughs> this
1: moment of like <laughs> moment of realization what, is, what are we doing yeah
0: and i mean it's, it's clear that this is this is one of the things that I think is fundamentally so troubling about this thing of you know taking down Socrates, taking down Aristotle, taking down Plato, mean taking down- You you're just gonna Russo. wing it? You're just gonna wing it? You don't want any of these guys to help? You don't want any of the guidance they could offer? Let me just bring, draw things to a close. We could speak all day, but um, by uh, coming back to one of the places where we started, um, one of the things I took from Aristotle, which, made an enormous impression on my life was the term he uses i think of the poetics of anagnorisis, the moment of of realization um now he describes it as happening in uh, a play when when the characters mm-hmm. suddenly become aware of a thing which the audience may know about them, which the playwright obviously knows about them, but they themselves have a moment of this is
1: different than epiphany
0: it's related okay. to it exactly. Um, and um, and this this moment of, of of recognizing the truth seems to me to, have, to be something with a much broader application. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, reading your books and hearing your description both of your own um, intellectual journey and discovery, and, and that of your father, that like many others of us there's a version of this that occurred yeah that there was a moment of a recognition of truth or as i've sometimes put it catching up with a truth that was always waiting for you mm-hmm. and that this is one of the most thrilling things that can happen in a human life the the suggestion that there is such a thing as truth that it's there waiting for you that you've just met it and that anyone else could catch up with it too if they wanted
1: right because the thing about truth is it's available to all there's no such thing as private truth um, or private knowledge but it's not accessed by all Um, and this is why uh, you know an education is really it's not um, something you know that uh, should be reduced to the culture whereas an education the, the, the liberatory power of an education the transformative power of being able to be at university and devote four years to to discovery i mean it's thrilling as you said and it's something that uh i mean what pains me i guess about these conversations is to reduce that 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 powerful human gift of epiphany or or this other beautiful greek word that you used to reduce that to um something so small as what we're talking about that you know well that's not for everybody that's why that that's you know there's different ways of knowing you know it's 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 sad to me and you know i, I guess uh, i was so moved by by this description of uh, of poor dominican kids being excited by socrates and it just seems so true to me that i i want i wrote the piece in the atlantic just because i wanted as many people as possible to know that this is not um This is not something that I should be protected from, or people who look like me should be protected from. Don't think that you're doing me a favor by saying that this isn't for me. You're actually, you're doing the opposite even if you mean well.
0: Thomas Chatter Williams, thank you. Thank you.